and welcome to The Sunday Salon, a podcast celebrating brilliant books and the women who write them. My name is Alice Azania Jarvis, and each week I chat to an inspiring female author about her work, her career, how she writes, what she reads, and everything in between. My guest this week is Alice Vincent. Alice is the features editor at Penguin Books, having previously worked as a writer and editor on the arts desk of The Telegraph. But you may know her by her Instagram handle, Nauticulture, where she shares her adventures in urban gardening. Her first book, How to Grow Stuff, was published in 2017, and she's just followed it up with Rootbound, Rewilding a Life, a hugely engaging memoir of how gardening helped her through her year of heartbreak. It's beautifully written and woven with fascinating dives into botanical history, as well as genuinely useful advice on how to grow plants in even the smallest of spaces. So Alice, welcome. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the book. How would you describe it? I think you did quite a good job there, actually. <laughs> good, good to know. I like, I like to give authors the chance to yeah. set the record straight, if not. No, I don't feel misrepresented. If anything, I'm very bad about talking about the book. So everyone's like, what's it about? I'm like, oh, it's about plants and heartbreak and South London and botanical history and pretty much in the format you've just described. So. Good, good, good. Um, so just a bit of background for everyone. You grew up in the countryside, but said you lusted after urban life. So you weren't always sort of green-fingered in that way. You said, as, as a teenager, and this is, this is from the book, as a teenager, I grew claustrophobic in the countryside. All that space, but no means to escape it. I lusted for the city, for London. Can you tell me about that feeling and, and sort of how you then came to appreciate the plants and the seasons once once you had left them behind? Such a good question. Yeah, it's funny because I think as adults, especially as, you know, I'm nudging into my 30s now, and as adults, you're sort of like, oh, a weekend in the countryside, you know, my, my girlfriends and I joke about getting out of Chelsea, even though that's definitely not where I live, just watch too much Made in Chelsea. Um, but yeah, and it's nice to have that rural escape, but it's something that until I was 18, 19, actually... I was thoroughly surrounded by rolling green fields and where I grew up, actually the small mindedness of the countryside. And I, from a really early age, um, was really obsessed with like rock music and I read The Enemy cover to cover every single week mm-hmm. and I sort of dived into this glittering, exciting, seeming gritty world of like Camden and the Hawley Arms and, you know, what the Strokes were doing in New York. And, and I just... I longed for it, it sounded so exciting. So I couldn't drive, I was like 13, and my parents were good at taking me to gigs and stuff, but essentially it was like, there are no buses leaving the village, you're relying on your parents everywhere for lifts, the only place you can go is Milton Keynes Shopping Centre. (laughs) It was so, to me, I was hungry for music and culture and art, and we'd go down to London on the train and go to Brick Lane, and that would be like enough excitement for a month, and then... It was, I was just so desperate for the big lights. Really was as simple as that. Mm. And then I found them and I moved to Newcastle first, which seemed very big and then rapidly became small and then to New York and then to London. And I suppose it was that in my mid-twenties, it wasn't that I found all of the, the fuss and the excitement draining as much as I just felt that it wasn't satisfying me in the same way. I think I was doing all the stuff that I thought I was meant to do. I was going clubbing and I was like having brunch and we were going on mini breaks. (laughs) And I was just like, is this it? Mm. Is this all I'm meant to feel? 
Um, and then, yeah, I just, I kind of got a balcony and started growing things. And I found it just an, such an innate satisfaction that I couldn't get from anything else. And I couldn't explain it. And I couldn't really talk about it because it was quite weird. Uh, a weird thing to do. I didn't know anyone else who gardened. But there was, it kind of clicked me into the green world and the kind of the nature around us in a very gradual way that I just found more fascinating than any new pop-up bar in Peckham. You said um, you couldn't really talk about it because you didn't know other people doing it. Uh, one thing you've you, you said is that you actually felt ashamed of it, yeah. I- in a way. Yeah. Uh, why did you feel ashamed of it? Because gardening's changed quite a lot among a certain demographic in the past five years. Um, and now it's totally normal to do what we did about... 20 minutes ago and look at house plants and, yeah. and like talk about <laughs> how nice the garden is. recording I should I should let everyone know I I made Alice inspect all my <laughs> my slightly limp house plants because we're in my flat at the moment and she very kindly gave me lots of advice <laughs> <laughs> anyway back to, back to you yeah so um that is now a very normal thing to do and there are adverts for plants everywhere and and people are open about like you know having a weird relationship with their succulent but Five years ago, seven years ago, that wasn't normal and outdoor gardening still isn't that popular among young people because we just don't have the facilities or the space or, or frankly, the understanding, um, which is something else I explore in the book. Because we weren't encouraged to get into plants in that way. Like we grew up with the dawn of the internet and mobile phones and that's what it was exciting. But yes, but to go to your point, why did I feel ashamed? I think because at the time gardening was something that was firmly associated with the retired and mm. the suburban mm. and the kind of small C conservative, no fuss please tea vicar mm. environs. Mm. And it was frumpy and weird. And even the word gardening felt a bit deeply unsexy. Mm. Like kind of imagine foam kneelers and, <laughs> you know, the kind of people who go around Chelsea Flower Show with an iPad to take photos. Like it, mm. it was just, you said it and you would instantly kill a conversation. Mm. And... Um, So I just kind of kept it to myself. (laughs) (laughs) The book deals with how gardening provides solace uh, in the aftermath of a breakup. And the breakup is with Josh, and you describe him as your formative love. Was it difficult writing about something so personal? And how did you decide which parts to include and which parts to hold back on? It wasn't even... For me, it wasn't that difficult a decision because there was an awful lot that isn't in the book. I mean, if you've read it as you have, you'll know that it's a relatively limited portrait Mm. um, of Josh. We don't really know that much about him. That was really deliberate. You know, I wanted to... It was very much my side of the story. And there was very much, like, a lot of affection and love left for that person. Mm. And as I explained quite quickly in the book, there was never really any anger for all of the upset. It was a simple fact of somebody not feeling the way that they used to. And you can't be angry with someone because their feelings don't exist in the same way. Um, As for writing about it, it was really difficult. And it's something that lasts long after you write it. Mm. You know, you live with that decision of what to include and what not to. You're very conscious that this is somebody who was deeply important in your life. But I suppose the stuff that I included were the bits that felt very pertinent to my story. They were the bits that my editor and I talked about being necessary for the narrative. Mm. And then the rest of it, I thought, well, nobody 
not only does nobody really need to know this, that it doesn't really add anything, but also it wouldn't be fair or right to include that. And it, mm. for me, that was a decision that was, it was just a case of, would you want to put this in a book? No, I don't think that's really a right thing to do. Mm. And I always very much told it from the perspective of, this happened to me and this was how I dealt with this. Can you explain for people who haven't read the book and, and just in general what it is about gardening that you found so helpful when going through emotional turmoil? I think it's the same way that people get into running in the mm. wake of a, you know, a kind of life trauma or upset or yoga or swimming or uh, even you know going out and annihilating themselves with drink and drugs mm. like gardening gave me a quietitude it, it didn't numb my feelings but it allowed me to escape them I find it a really meditative process because you have to think innately about what you're doing but also a lot of the stuff that you're doing is quite repetitive mm. and the more you learn the more it's a bit like cleaning your house you mm. might think oh I'm just going to go and take the bins out and then three hours later you're sorting like a weird cupboard under the stairs <laughs> out because you're just like oh I'm just going to do this and I'll just do this and gardening's kind of the same you might just have one job in mind but it leads to a whole chain of events that I found really calming it it allowed me space to think mm. and it also was more than the action itself so it allowed you know if you're observing in your garden that certain natural processes are unfolding you learn enough to acknowledge them in the wider world around you so you might be walking down the street as I just was on on the way here and you'll be like oh look that um hyacinth is coming up you know mm. or that hydrangea has got new buds on and it could really do with a prune and you you kind mm. of you clock the wider world around you in a way that allows you to get distance from everything else that's going on in your life mm. it's interesting because as someone who writes and deals with stories and storytelling for a living that's something you need to be able to do to to observe the world changing around you did you find that it honed your observational skills in, in the rest of your life? Did it did it help in that sense? I don't know, because I think, if anything, the process of writing a book while having a full-time job and various other things of a normal person's life means that something's got to give, and I do feel like I've not observed as much news in the last few years as I should have. Yeah, uh, You can't read everything all the time. Yeah. I that's a, that's a very interesting question. I don't know. I'd like to think so. I'd like to think that we're always getting better at observing things. But I also think that there's only so much you can juggle in your brain at one point. But it has definitely clued me into the environment, which is I think everyone is because of what's been happening mm. in environmental awareness. But I think it's it's a natural path to go from acquiring a few succulents to inevitably understanding why you should use peat free compost mm. or why you should plant seasonally or embrace weeds and why organic farming is important because it's all connected and the more you realize how integral it is the survival of the planet you can't really ignore it so I suppose in that regards I've become more observant but generally I wouldn't know one thing I really loved about the book was the little um the the kind of dives into history that you do and I was particularly struck by the kind of history of women in gardening and how it's actually been quite a feminist pursuit as early as the 18th century, I think, you say botany was considered the most appropriate natural science for women to study, which is really interesting because it was obviously a kind of gateway science in, yeah. a, in a sense. Can you tell me about that, about the, the women in botany that you learned about? 
Yeah, so there is, I should definitely acknowledge a book just called Gardening Women by Catherine Horwood, which if, if you're finding that interesting, you should get mm. into that because it's a fascinating history. It goes all the way back to the, to the 17th century. Um, botany was considered a suitably ladylike pursuit because he had sort of had <laughs> delicate fingers and they were like, oh, the ladies can go out and look and draw plants. That's a nice thing. But what happened is they wanted us to do a certain type of delicate botany, but they didn't want us plant hunting. Mm. Plant hunting is very, you know, wrapped up in the rest of kind of England's colonial history. But when the ships started going out to different parts of the world, the plant hunters went with them and a lot mm. of those plants were brought back. And there were these amazing women who weren't meant to be doing that and would do it anyway. So maybe their husbands were out in the colonies in high positions and they would plant hunt quietly while they were at work, while their husbands were at work. And they'd bring <laughs> back varieties that have informed what grows in our gardens now. There's a woman called Marianne North, who is a general champ in many ways. She refused to marry. She sought it, you know... She described herself as being like a wild bird who liked freedom and she saw marriage as a kind of death and... And she travelled a bit with her father. And then when he died and she was in her mid-twenties, she just carried on alone. And, and she went all over the world to places that even if we went now as millennial women, people would be like, oh, that's an exotic holiday. Mm. Like She went all over the world and she documented flora and fauna that even at the time was endangered and extinct. And her paintings fill this beautiful jewel box of a gallery in Kew Gardens. And there are hundreds of them and she created, in the process, the most important botanical record of all of these different types of plants that exi- existed then and don't now. Um, and another couple come to mind, these suffragettes who made protests at Kew, mm. which, you know, is not technically a botanical activity, but it shows how important then, like Kew Gardens was just as popular then as it is now, and mm. they chose this platform to make this statement about feminism. And I found the way that plants and feminism and protests were entwined so interesting because I think people think that it's a very delicate activity and actually protest and politics are involved in gardening all the way back. Mm-hmm. Which feels so relevant now. Right, yeah, yeah, very much. Another thing you discuss a lot in the book is, is satisfying your urge to garden with limited space. Yeah. Um, you mentioned your balcony which is a sort of recurring motif in the book, The Balcony. What advice would you give someone who wants to, who say, you know, living in a flat, they've just got a window box or they've got a balcony and they're starting from scratch. Mm. What advice would you give them on starting to create a green space? And so don't be scared. Lots of people are scared. (laughs) And also don't go to, you know, the nice posh, a garden centre and spend a colossal amount of money without maybe working out what those things are first, (laughs) which everyone is guilty of. But um, if you know someone who does it, invite them around for a cuppa because that would definitely help. Mm. But I know that not everyone does. And so what I would say is, you know, there are a few questions that you need to ask yourself. Um, One, do you want to grow things to eat or do you want to grow things to look at? Mm. Because the the biggest challenge is that you look and you're like, oh my goodness, there are so many plants. What on earth do I do? There's Mm. ways of divvying them up. What do you want to eat? Do you you want to eat or do you want to grow things to look at? 
once you've gone down that aspect you need to ask yourself a bit like you would with indoor plants like how much light do you get Mm. how much time do you want to spend on it do you have a kind of idea in mind of what you want it to look like do you want it to be sort of soft and meadowy or do you want it to be very kind of stark and architectural and tropical and Mm. and once you it's a bit like decorating a house once Mm. you kind of have those vague ideas you can either dive into Pinterest warily because Pinterest is a a world of pain at times um or instagram or pick up a copy of you know the modern garden magazine or and essentially know what you're playing with first in terms of light space and ambition and once you've got that down then you can maybe go to you know then go to columbia road or go to the supermarket and the Mm. other option is if you don't want to do that much thinking the plants that are freely available at supermarkets and on columbia road will be in season Mm. and they will be easy to look after and i started gardening with supermarket plants and plants from columbia road and a lot of them are like plug and play like you literally put them in a pot and you will inevitably water them too much um but you will learn (laughs) enough from their from their survival that will hopefully engender interest to continue is it important to feed them as well Sorry, I'm now just picking your brains. <laughs> it's a really good question. Um, I don't feed my plants as much as I should. Yeah. Um, if you are feeding them, only feed. It's easy to split the year up, and or the growing season up by clocks going back and forth. Okay. So you should never feed once the clocks have gone back. Oh. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, you know, and then wait until the clocks gone forward. So basically, March to October, feed as much as you like, mm. water more. Mm. Once the clocks go back. Just cut all of that stuff out. I mean, water less because the plants will be largely out of their growing season. So they need those things less. Mm. You can be in great risk of like killing with kindness. Mm. Um, Feeding, yes. If you want lots and lots of flowers, feed every week. Gosh, I feel like we should have kind of listener call-ins and just sort of like (laughs) recreate gardener's question time or something. That would be so good. We can't do that on a podcast. Maybe people can sort of tweet us or something. But anyway, back to the book. Um, (laughs) You spent time in New York and you travelled to Japan and, of course, you live in London. And you talk about the importance of green spaces in cities, the kind of urban lungs. How did you find the green spaces in those different places compare? And what do you do about sort of making sure you still get to outdoor places in London, living in London? The good news is that London is the best. (laughs) It's the best one. It really is. Nearly half of London is green space. And a lot of that will be private gardens and a lot of that will be garden squares, which I always try and break into. I can't go past one without trying to see if the game is open. It's just the most exciting thing. Um, but we are blessed with parks. Like you will have, you know, that if you don't know where your nearest one is, just bring up Google Maps and you'll see a little triangle of green near you. There are so many hidden, beautiful gardens and community gardens and parks mm. that often you need to kind of, stumble upon and they're these little oases how do I make sure I get that green space often it's a case of jumping off the bus to stop early and doing a bit of a walk Mm. I live opposite um, the gardens of the Horniman Museum in South London and they are so beautifully planted they're very well designed they're a prairie garden Um, they're incredibly beautiful and they look amazing all year round and I will often just force myself to take an extra 10 minutes when I go to the shop to go and sit and look in those gardens. Mm. And it's daft because they're over the road from me and I still don't feel I get there enough. Mm. And it's a bit like if you're walking to work, find the gardens that are near your office on your lunch break. There will be one somewhere and just try and pop out 
even just once a week, be like, right, mm. Wednesday's the day I'm going to go to the garden. Wednesday's mm. the day I'm going to go to the park. Also, I think, you know, England are, like England and the UK, we do really love plants more than I think we realise. And even in London, people have window boxes, people have front gardens, people do tend to things. It's a case of just sticking your phone in your pocket and actually having a look a mm. lot of the time and looking what the trees are doing. There's more than a lot of people realise to be inspired by had you always wanted to be a writer when you were growing up? I know that you were really passionate about music, as you mentioned, and uh, you would wanted to be a, a music journalist mm. for a while. Where did that interest in words come from? It's so interesting you ask, because a couple of nights ago I had my book launch for Rootbound, and my mum was just telling everyone she always, always did want to be a writer, always was good with words, and it was just like, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid... I wanted to be a children's book illustrator, which is a, a mouthful and deeply precocious. Interest of words, I think it, it genuinely came from reading, my parents always got the time, so reading T2 every morning, reading the NME cover to cover. I didn't read many books as a teenager. That's why I wanted to be a journalist, because I wanted to write columns like those that I read in newspapers and magazines. Mm-hmm. And style, like on Sunday, in the Sunday Times, style was incredible. And um, I think when I was about 16, someone I I worked with in a pub was like, you know, you should be a music journalist. You know so much about music and you care so much about reading the enemy. And and I was like, oh, yeah, I guess. And that was when that ambition uh, turned up. But no, I wasn't one of those children who wrote stories all the time or I think I could do it, but it wasn't my favourite thing. Hmm. And, And how did you get your start in journalism? Um, working for free a lot, <laughs> like a lot of people. No, I went to university and at the Freshers' Fair, I signed up for the student newspaper. Mm. And I was doing like, I just put my hand up for everything. Within my first week, I was like interviewing the front man of a band who were very, very big in 2009. And I now can't even remember who they were but it was slightly embarrassing but he was like this bombastic rock star figure and he was like ashing his cigarette in a coffee cup on the tour bus and so I had so much fun writing these big features and then I started writing for local press and it wasn't the towers of London it it? wasn't but it was of that ill (laughs) it was of that ill can I I Reverend and the Makers oh right that's who it was yeah Reverend and the Makers so um I interned when it was still really glorified work experience called interning, you know, I did like a few weeks at Vice in my summer holidays and Mm. ID magazine and stuff like that and local papers too. And I just did a lot of work free. I had a part-time job while I was working at uni, which is why I was able to do it. My sister lived in London. I was very fortunate. And then I went to New York to intern for Nylon magazine, which came off the back of an NME internship. And after temping in banks and stuff, got um, eventually... Uh, a paid internship at Wired and after that HuffPost and then there we are yeah it was just a case of um, of writing for everyone who would have me and now you, you're just starting we're actually recording the weekend before your first week you're starting a new job at Penguin uh, you're the features editor can you tell me about that yes it's it's um, it's a new title there so I'm doing a lot of explaining and I think I'll probably be doing quite a lot of explaining once I get there as well because obviously Penguin's a big publishing house they've got um, nine imprints and uh, me and a, a small but blossoming hopefully team of writers and editors will be working to create uh, long form articles and content and um, other multimedia projects with those authors 
and about the Penguin Archive and about mm. ideas that the books that they are publishing conjure. So I'm really looking forward to um, looking kind of more in-depth at other writers' work and mm. at books and also learning loads about the publishing process. Like as an author, you only get one angle into mm. it. And I was at The Telegraph for seven years and it was incredible. And I'm still enormously fond of the team there who brought me up essentially as a writer. And it is, as you'll know, incredibly fast-paced in the newspaper. Mm. And ideas, I felt frustrated that ideas weren't being given a chance to linger. Mm. And I've been, you know, it was a case of just because you can write a feature in a couple of hours doesn't mean you should. Mm. Um, mm. So I'm looking forward to taking a little more time and doing some new things. Mm. Exciting. In terms of the backstory behind Rootbound and Nauticulture, mm. that, that came from a newsletter. Can you tell me about that, your decision to set it up and how it grew? Yes, so Nauticulture has uh, existed as an Instagram account since 2015, I think, very late 2015. And that was essentially a means of testing the water and procrastination away from writing a weekly gardening column for The Telegraph, which I was just riddled with imposter syndrome about. So I thought, oh, I'll just do this Instagram account and see if there's any appetites. Little did I know that I'd be catapulted into um, this incredibly kind community of online gardeners uh, Mm. who are very important and great. Anyway, so the newsletter followed about 18 months after that. And the original notion was that it would be quite a practical dispatch. And I'd go and look at people's interesting, uh, normal people's interesting back gardens in urban spaces and take photographs and talk to them about it. And it would be a kind of a journal, I suppose. Mm. But... um, that was also at the time when the events of the book happened and I was like, everything was just falling apart and doing all of that was more work than I could handle. But at the same time, I just found that I started to document moments of nature and gardening that brought me joy. And it was a really nice place to have a kind of microscopic look at something that was a nothing often. It was like something being in bloom or going on holiday and seeing a beautiful sunset like it sounds terribly whimsical and it is I guess but um so the newsletter developed from something very practical to something extremely personal and a, a sort of sweet nothing and I got a better reaction to it than anything I've written in my entire professional life mm. so um after about six months I suppose it became apparent that maybe I should do something with that mm. Mm. and in terms of writing the book alongside doing that yeah and doing your full-time job how did you do that well the newsletter was a really sweet release because often I'd write them in about 15 minutes and just send it out like Mm -hmm. it was like oh one of the recent issues was going up to Hampstead Heath and seeing this oak that must have been about 150 years old older has fall down because the soil was so wet and it was dead but Mm -hmm. it was like such an amazing thing to witness and I on the on the tube home I wrote it and sent it and it was a kind of a just a sigh like I didn't have to think about it in a professional way so the newsletter wasn't ever really a problem but the book alongside the job is is a bit like running a marathon you just have to be very disciplined and you have to do it when you don't want to Mm. so I was helped by the fact that I worked shifts at the telegraph so Mm. I would often be done by 3 p.m and the RHS library is very close to the office so I just Mm. go down the road do 90 minutes at least of writing there um I I guess for quite a long time I just worked a six-day week in some capacity like I would fit at least one of the weekend days would be writing the book and then I'd be writing in the evenings 
And there are definitely days when you've been writing all day and you just don't want to do any more writing. But often the challenge of writing the book is just getting the words down rather than making them any good. And jumping off that idea of kind of juggling the, the kind of three elements, the, the nauticulture, the, the book and, and the job. And one thing I was struck by reading the book is how you speak about plants as almost an antidote to our online mm-hmm. hyper-connected world. Now you've got, you know, more than 22,000 followers on Mm. Nauticulture. What is your relationship like with social media? Because it it can be a huge distraction. It can also just, people can find it an upsetting thing Mm. in general, but also a hugely positive thing. What's your relationship like with social media? So uh, I'm really glad you asked because it's something I've been thinking about a lot, especially since finishing Rootbound, which kind of happened last middle of last year and actually to the extent that I think it might become a new project for me a source of something to think about is how actually technology and nature interact because yes there are definitely times like last weekend before all of this happening I went up to Northumberland and just literally sat in an off-grid cabin by myself and turned my phone off Mm. and sat there by myself reading books and looking at the sunset and not deliberately not doing anything on the internet and that was so needed and there are definitely times when I am like have to switch my dms off because Mm. there are too many people messaging me and I feel too compelled to have to deal with it all the time but Instagram was actually deeply hand in hand with my enjoyment and education in gardening because Mm. nobody else taught me anything about plants in the Mm. way that people professional gardeners friends did on Instagram Mm. and it also allowed me a way of talking about it that I didn't have anywhere else and I am a gardener but I'm a writer and a storyteller first Mm. and so Instagram allowed me a way of sticking up a photo and being like telling the tiny story of I put this to to seed six weeks ago and now it's germinated Mm. Mm. and it was a way of me processing it and understanding it But yeah, you're not the first person to be like, oh, you say you need to get away from social media. I think the other difference is that while I was getting really into Plantstagram, as I think about it, Nauticulture took a lot of my attention and I didn't use my personal account, the one with my mates and my mum on, Mm. for a long, long time, Mm. like a really long time. And I just didn't even look at it. Mm. So those things that are like oh, so-and-so's holiday looks really great, or, Mm. oh, well, look how perfect their life with their boyfriend is. Mm. I just didn't see it. And my Mm. feed on my plant account is literally just people's gardens Mm. and what they're growing. So it's it's actually instead of, oh, I wish I was on that night out, it's, oh, how interesting, your hellebores have come out. Mm. And it's Mm. a different, it actually allows me a vision into everyone's back garden, which I find really nice. Mm. Mm. It's a different thing. But you are right, and I do think... The way that, you know, when you have an account of a modest heft, you do begin to, even the fact that I've got a personal account and a, an, a semi-professional one shows that there is a filter of some sort of what mm. we put out there. And mm. I do think about it. Mm. We're running out of time, so I'm going to let you go soon. But before I do, a couple of final things. Obviously, you're really busy doing the promo for this yeah. at the moment. Um, you've got a new job. It's all happening. Have you had the chance about to think about what you would like to do next? You mentioned just now a project involving technology and plants. Yeah. Um, do you have any ideas that you're happy to share? Um, well, I think the word project is a, a kind of synonym for the word book. 
I think <laughs> I want to sort of explore if there's enough there to pursue that in a more long form situation. Mm. But no, I, I really want to actually throw myself into the new job, actually. I think when you write alongside a job, the nine to five can, you can take your foot off the pedal a little bit, a little bit mm. with the nine to five. And, and um, I'm really looking forward to blending the kind of creativity I put into things like Rootbound into what I do nine to five, actually. Yeah, exciting, exciting. And, and final question, uh, which I do ask everyone who comes on, which is simply if you could go back and give your younger self some advice, what would it be? This changes quite often. <laughs> um, it will often be like, do not worry about your bra size or, you know, or watch more film. It will be useful in later life. But I, I think <laughs> at, at this point in time... I like the fact that you've given this so much thought in your life. <laughs> I know. Well, I've just written a memoir, it's Alice. Like, yeah. come on. It's like a self-indulgent person. Desert Island discs for advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I think I would probably tell her that all of the things that she's getting grief for will be exactly what makes her interesting when she's older. Oh, that is good advice. That's that's a fantastic note to end on. Alice, thank you. I've loved talking to you. And thank you so much for your um, gardening advice as well. <laughs> <laughs> and to everyone listening, Root Bound, Rewilding a Life is out now. So that's it from us. Thank you so much for listening to The Sunday Salon. Please do share your thoughts about the episode with me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alicezania. And more importantly, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate or review it. Uh, It really helps its position in its charts and means new people can find it. So until next week, thank you very much and goodbye. Goodbye.